you would, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Ephesians 5, 22. We're going to be in this passage one more Sunday, and then we'll be moving on. But if you would, just read along with me, starting in verse 22. We're going to read all the way through 6, verse 4. So verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, Lord, I just lift up this passage where I thank you for inspiring Paul Lord, to write this portion of Scripture, the church of Ephesus, Lord, that it would find its way to our church this morning, Lord, as we've been studying it for the last few weeks, God. I pray, Lord, that we see this morning just how important the family is, just how important marriage is, Lord, within the church. God, as I have been praying, Lord, I pray that our church, Lord, is a light on a hill, Lord, that the families within our church, Lord, the marriages within our church, Lord, are an example Lord, are not just an example, but they point to f- foundational truths, reality, Lord, realities, Lord, that are beyond marriage itself and the family itself. Be with us this morning as we look at these things. In your son's name, amen. This is the last time we'll be in this passage. Next week we'll move on. Um, this passage that is one of the clearest, if not clearest, passages on the family in all of Scripture And as I've been saying, it's also one of the most controversial portions of Scripture in the Bible. Western civilization long ago rejected its biblical foundation. It rejected the Bible as its ultimate authority, ultimate standard of truth. Therefore, when it comes to the family, it was only a matter of time before our culture, before Western civilization asked the question, why does the family have to start with one man and one woman. Secular society doesn't have an answer to this question or questions like it. 
The best it can offer is tradition. Secular society has no ontological truth or ultimate reality to say this, this is what a family should look like. That's why we see cohabitation. Question as, why marry at all in the first place? Homosexual, or homosexuality. Why a woman and a man? Transgenderism. Why can't a woman become a man? Pelagian, or, uh, polygamy. Why not many women or many men? Whatever comes after this. These are all attacks on the family, the biblical understanding of the family, divorce, egalitarianism, gender confusion, abortion. Just think about that for a second. The most unsafe place for a child in America is within the mother's womb. The family is under attack in our culture. And here's the point. A secular postmodern society has no answer to the question why the family? Or why does it matter? Or what is a family? Therefore, our culture has opened the door to define marriage and the family any way it wants, and by doing this, they really have destroyed the idea of the family as a whole. I mean, think about it. If the family can be anything, then the family is nothing. By abandoning the Bible, Western civilization has abandoned the, the substance, the purpose, the meaning behind the word family. I want to be clear, this is not an attack on society. To be honest, without the Bible, there's no reason not to question the traditional family. If it's all tradition. But of course, we know as Christians, the family is much more than just tradition. That's why this sermon this morning. I wanted to spend one more Sunday on this passage to answer the question, why the family? I just felt it was too important to move on. One more question, I know a lot of this is going to, to or one more sermon, I know a lot of this is going to be reviewed, but I want to look at the foundation of the family. The foundation of the family, I have two points today, two foundational truths about the family. The first point is this, the family images God. And the second point is this, the family points to the gospel. The family points, points to the gospel. So let's look at the first point. The family images God. Look at Ephesians 5.31. It says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul here is quoting Genesis. I just want you to notice though the word therefore. Paul quotes Genesis and it starts with the word therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The word therefore tells us that there is an ultimate reality. There's an objective truth that precedes this command. Remember, God's commands aren't arbitrary. There's always a foundational truth, a reality that supports his commands. It's like when you tell your kids, don't touch the stove. Why? Why not touch the stove? Because there's a foundational reality, because the stove is hot. Don't touch the stove is the command. The stove is hot is the ontological truth. It's, it's the ultimate reality or the reality behind the command. You could reword that command 
The stove is hot, therefore, don't touch it. The stove is hot is the reality, don't touch it is the command. Well, look at verse 31. There's a command here, and it starts with the word, therefore. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What comes before the word, therefore? What is the foundational reality behind this command is the question I want to look at this morning. To answer that, we need to go to Genesis. So if you would, turn with me to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. It doesn't get any more foundational than Genesis. As you're turning there, let me just give you the context of what's going on in the first two chapters. We know this is the creation account, and at this point in verse 18, chapter 2, verse 18, God has created the earth, the sea, the sun, the moon, the stars, the plants, animals, and he's created man. And look what it says in verse 18, Genesis 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good. And it's not good. It's the first time God has said this. He's saying creation at this point is not good. It's incomplete. Look at verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. In other words, man was incomplete. He was missing something. He was in need. He needed a companion. He needed a helper fit for him. Let's look at verse 19. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Again, there's an incompleteness. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took, took, out, um, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then verse 24, Therefore, therefore, because man was alone, incomplete, right? because, because woman was made to complete him, to be his companion, to be his helpmate. Because of these realities, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Listen, one man, a man shall leave his father, one woman hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. In other words, man and woman were created to complement and complete each other. This means man and woman, and this is a profound truth, controversial in our society, are different. (laughs) Right? We know that. They're different. Adam and Eve were made differently. Adam was made first from the dust. Eve was made second from Adam's flesh. Man and woman are different. Biologically, they're different. They have different roles, according to Scripture, different roles within the family, within the church, different responsibilities, different giftings, different authorities. 
yet they are 100% equal in value. They are different, but they're equal in worth. They're equal in their humanity. And in marriage, they become one flesh. What does that sound like? Different, equal in worth, yet one. Right? Diversity, man and, and female, or male and female, unity, one flesh. It sounds like the Trinity. Right? Diversity, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, unity, one God. The family images God. In fact, turn with me to Genesis 1, verse 26. Genesis 1, verse 26. It says this in verse 26, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Right? God made man in his image. Man was made in the image of God. And let, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over, over all the earth and over every creepy thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Him, unity. Them, diversity. I mean, this is important, right? Creation glorifies God. We know this. Psalms 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, but only man images God out of all creation. And look what it says in verse 26. Let us, plural, make man in our, plural, image, after our, plural likeness. That's because God is a trinity. Three persons. And look at verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Marriage images God. Unity, one flesh. Diversity in roles, relationship, authority. Diversity in gender. And that comes all before the therefore in Genesis 2, 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Diversity, right? One man, one woman. And they shall become one flesh, unity. The family images God. Actually, just think about this. The Bible's clear that the husband has authority. We've gone over this the last few weeks. The husband is to lead the family. He has authority over the wife. But the husband and wife has authority over their children. Yet, they're all 100% equal in value. Think about the Trinity. The Father has authority over the Son. The Bible's clear on that. The Father and the Son both have authority over the Holy Spirit. Yet, all 100% equal in value. Listen, your marriage, your family is meant to image God. It's meant to image God. It's a foundational truth that the family was modeled after. The family images God. Second point, though, is the family points to the gospel. The family points to the gospel. Turn back to Ephesians 5, verse 31. We've been saying as we've been going through this passage that the family is foundational to society. That's clear. But listen, marriage is foundational to the family. Therefore, the marriage union is the most important relationship in all of society. 
In fact, you want to destroy a society? Destroy marriage. And the society will crumble. Look what 31 says. Ephesians 5 verse 31 says this, Therefore, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Again, this is the family. It images God. But look at verse 32. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage is a testimony to Christ and the church. Look what verse 32 says. It says this mystery is profound. We've talked about this word mystery in the New Testament. It typically means, when you see the word mystery in the New Testament, it typically means something that was hidden in the past in the Old Testament that is now revealed in the New Testament. And it fits here. Paul, Paul starts with an Old Testament reality in verse 31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's Genesis. Then he moves to something revealed in the New Testament. Verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage points to Christ and the church. It's been revealed in the New Testament. This mystery is profound, Paul says. The word, the Greek word for profound there is mega. It means great. Some of your translations has this mystery is great. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Again, look at Ephesians 5, verse 25, we've talked about this. Verse 25 says this, Husbands, love your wives. That's the command. It's imperative. Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's the reality. It could be switched around. It could be like this. Christ loved the church, therefore, husbands, love your wives. It's like the stove is hot. That's the reality. Therefore, don't touch it. That's the command. Christ loved the church, therefore, husbands, love your wife. In fact, look, look at verse 25. It says this, Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The word holy here is hagios in Greek, pertaining to being holier, to the sense of superior moral qualities. Blemishes, amomos, amomos, it's pertaining to being without fault, and hence morally blameless. Ephesians 5 is saying, God the Son loved the church so much that he gave his life for her to sanctify her, that, that she, the church, might be holy and without blemish. What's interesting is the second time Paul's used this phrase, might be holy and without blemish. If you, if you would, turn to Ephesians 1, verse 3. Ephesians 1, verse 3. You should be very familiar with this. Ephesians 1, verse 3 says, Bless be the God and Father our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we, this is the church, should be holy and blameless before him. It's the same phrase in Greek, same words used. 
There's a connection here. Remember, the first three chapters is the deep theology. The second three chapters is the application, right? The commands that come from these deep theologies. Paul is making a con- connection here, verse five, chapter 5, with the very beginning of Ephesians. In Ephesians 1, 3, listen, God the Father from eternity past, it says before the foundation of the world, God the Father chose us that one day we should be holy and blameless. In Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, God the Son loved us so much, he died for us, sanctified us, that we should be holy and blameless. God the Father, in other words, planned out our salvation. God the Son achieved our salvation. There's a connection. In fact, throughout Scripture, in the New Testament especially, you see a connection between God the Father, God the Son, and the church. If you would, look at Ephesians 1, verse 22. It says this in verse 22, and he, this is God the Father in the context, and he, God the Father, put all things under his, this is God the Son, feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ is head over all things, meaning he has authority over everything, but then Paul gets very personal in verse 22. He says, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. There's nothing more personal than your body. Look closely what's happening here. God the Father is the one acting And he gives the Son, he gives Jesus to the church, which is his body. In other words, from eternity past, God the Father chose, he elected a group of people. Ephesians 1, 4 says this, he chose us in him before the foundations of the world to be redeemed by his Son. Ephesians 1, 7 says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, to become the body of Christ. Ephesians 1, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. I just don't know if we understand how deep our salvation truly is. The realities behind it. If you would, turn with me to Titus 1.1. Titus 1.1. It says this in verse 1. Paul, a servant of God, that's God the Father. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, that's the Son, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, that's the church, and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, verse 2, look at this, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. God made a promise before the ages began. So here's my question, who did he promise? Before the ages began, before creation before humans, before angels, before any created being. All there was was God before the ages began. The word for word in Greek is before times eternal. The only thing I can think of is that God promised himself, which makes sense because he's a trinity. 
Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Second Timothy chapter one verse eight. Listen to what it says, verse eight. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me in prison, his prisoner, but share but share in, in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of of his own purpose and grace, which he, this is the Father, gave us, the church, in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Again, before times eternal, God the Father gave us the church in Christ. So here's my guess with all these passages. God the Father made a promise to God the Son before the ages began, Titus 1-2, to give the Son the church in him, 2 Timothy 1-8, which the Son would have to redeem, would have to die for, would have to give himself up to make the church his own. Therefore, the church is a gift, a gift from the Father to the Son. The church is a in a Trinitarian gift. I mean, just think about that. You know, sometimes I think we read our Bibles and we approach it by saying this, what's this have to say about me and what I need to do? Instead of going to the Bible and approaching it and saying, what's this say about him and what he has done? In fact, turn with me to John 6. Verse 37. John 6, verse 37. In this passage, Jesus is talking, verse verse 37, and Jesus says, all that the Father gives me, that's the Son, all the Father gives me, the all is the church, All that the Father gives me, the Son, will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's the church. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The Father planned this all out. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up in the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's the church. Turn to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 27. Verse 27 says this, My sheep, it's the church, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me, it's a gift from the Father, is greater than all 
and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand, right? The, the, the sheep are a gift from the father to the son, and, and the son and the father will make sure no one snatches them out of the son's hand. It's a precious gift from the father to the son. Turn to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, this is an amazing chapter. If you're not familiar with this portion of Scripture, it's a prayer from the Son to the Father. And in fact, it's a prayer that the Son is praying for, for his people. I mean, we, get a, we get an insight here of, of how the Father and the Son communicate. I mean, just think about that. God has revealed this to us. How the Son is praying for us, the church, right now. This is an example of that. Verse, chapter 17. Look at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom? To whom? To whom you have given him. In other words, I am ready to give eternal life to all those you have given me. Look at verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me. Out of the world, yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Look at verse 9. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Look at verse 24. Father, Father, I desire that, that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me when? Before the foundation of the world. I believe God the Father made a promise in eternity past to God the Son that he would give the Son a redeemed humanity as a gift, the, the church, a redeemed humanity that would serve and glorify him forever in eternity. I mean, think about that. We're caught up in an inter-Trinitarian promise, a gift from the Father to the Son. But listen, what is the church's relationship to Christ? The church is the bride of Christ. God the Father, in other words, from eternity past, promised his son a bride. And that's how it all ends. Listen to Revelation 19, verse 6. It says this, And I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of a mighty pearls of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. That's Jesus in the church. Jesus, the Lamb, the church, the bride. Listen to what Revelations 21 says. Verse 1, Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and I saw, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's how it all ends. God the Father gives 
his son a bride adorned for her husband. God brings home a bride for his beloved son as a gift. And all the saints will live with Christ in the Father's house for eternity. In fact, that's why Jesus says in John 14, 2, In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you that. I go and prepare a place for you. He's preparing a place for his bride. Remember what Paul said? This mystery is great. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Listen, our marriages point to something bigger than us. Something far beyond us. This is a foundational truth that's beyond your marriage. That's why marriage exists, to point us and to point people to Christ. Profound love for the church. In fact, Christ had a love for the church well before marriage was invented. Now turn to Ephesians 5, verse 22. Ephesians 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. As we've been saying, that's a hard command. It's a very offensive command in our culture. But look what Paul says in verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Paul grounds this command in theology and in deep truth and reality. He is saying, glorify God, wives, in your marriage by submitting to your husband. Verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. That's a hard calling. But then look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up her. That's the harder calling. Right? That's the more selfless calling. We've talked about this. Husbands, we're called to lay down our lives, our preferences, lay down everything for the good of our bride. To love her sacrificially as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That, he might, that she might be holy and without blemish. I mean, that's the reality. Christ loved the church so much. He did what, what, what he needed to do to, to sanctify her and to get her ready for eternity. That's the reality. Look at verse 20, 28. Here's the command. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He loves his wife, loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Christ cherishes the church. Why? Because the church is a gift from his Father. The church is a gift to him. Verse 31, therefore, there's that word, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh this mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Listen, your marriage is not about you. Your marriage is bigger than you. 
Your marriage is a testimony of God's grace on the church, the testimony of the gospel. Therefore, husbands, love your wives. Cherish your wives. Wives, respect and honor and submit to your husbands. Look at verse 32 again. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. However, here's the command. Let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Why does this matter, and why would I spend so much time just going over this again? Listen, it's because God doesn't give arbitrary commands. He didn't arbitrarily say, husbands, love your wives. Right? He, didn't, he didn't look down and say, hey, you know what, I think this is a good idea, wives, submit to your husbands. God doesn't arbitrarily say that marriage is between one man and one woman. He doesn't arbitrarily say that, that marriage is for life and the two should become one flesh and not separate. There are grand, profound, great realities that preceded these commands. The family images God. The family points to the gospel. Again, I just want to be clear. The sermon is not an attack on our culture. Our culture is lost. Our culture is lost. We should expect confusion. That shouldn't surprise us. Our hearts should cry out for people that are confused about their gender, confused about what marriage is. Right? That's, our, that's, our, that's our mission field. We need to be sharing the good news with people, loving them. Right? This sermon is not an attack on, on our culture. We need to look at ourselves. This sermon is for the church. We need to make the family a priority in the church. Family is so important. Let me just end with application, and it's quick. Because of these grand, great, profound realities and truths, husbands, love and cherish your wives. Wives, respect, submit, and honor to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Parents, don't exasperate your children. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, Lord, I thank you so much for the family, Lord. I thank you for your grace, Lord. I thank you for the truths that the family point to, Lord, the, the, the image of God, this, 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 this idea of who you are, Lord. Three in one, Lord. We see that in the marriage union, Lord. Two becoming one flesh, I know the Trinity is so far beyond our understanding and far, so far beyond even the image, Lord. But I thank you that marriage images you, Lord. I thank you the family images you, Lord. I thank you that, that marriage points to the gospel, Lord. Help us remember that when we are struggling in our marriage, that, that our marriage is beyond us. It's, 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 it's not about us. That when wives are hard to love, Lord, we remember that, that, that our marriage is not about us. When, when husbands are hard to submit to, Lord, we remember that this is beyond us. And we should love and submit. 
God, give us the grace that we need to have strong marriages, which are foundational to the family. Give us the grace that we need to have strong families in our church, that we would be a witness to a culture that is falling apart. I pray for that in your son's name. Amen.